glad that you are here today. I don't know if you know this. Um, this might be a, a theological uh, lesson to you that you didn't know before. If you come to church the Sunday after Easter, uh, you get a fancy she shed behind your mansion in heaven one day. Um, so well done. You came two weeks in a row. I'm just kidding. Aren't you glad it doesn't work that way? Man, I'm so glad that it does not work that way. But at this point, I would be thrilled with a cardboard box in paradise. I just can't believe he's welcomed me into his family. Um, July 21st, 1861 was a weird day in American history. About 30 miles southwest of D.C., where some of us were together uh, this past week, this this interesting moment. Matter of fact, a a moment I first read about in a book over a decade ago uh, by a guy named Dave Harvey, and I I shared this illustration once before nine years ago. So those of you who remember those things, who are going to tell me afterwards, you've said this before. I'm telling you in advance. Nine years ago, I did share this story. and if only you remembered the good things I said that clearly, that'd be awesome. Um, this moment in history where there was this conflict beginning that many of our, our nation's leaders thought was going to be very short-lived, not that big a deal. But there was this conflict beginning in our country politically, and they thought, well, I think this is actually going to turn violent. It will be very brief, and we want to watch it happen. July 21st, 1861, people outside of D.C. packed picnic lunches, went out and sat on a hill near Manassas and watched as they thought this very brief battle would unfold. And it was the beginning of the Civil War, what is called the Battle of Bull Run, the first major Battle of the Civil War, and it was a bloody and ugly moment. And what happened is the battle turned, the warfare turned, and started to come up the hill where the picnickers were sitting. There's a modern historical arts organization who uh, produced a, a work of art that captures this moment that I think is really interesting. This lovely little afternoon lunch all of a sudden became warfare, became a battleground. And the reality is those picnickers discovered something profound that day that I believe we need an awakening of this morning. And that is this. Dave Harvey wrote, you can't be close to war and safe from it At the same time, you can't be close to war and safe from it at the same time. The reason I believe that's a timely message is I believe there are far too many of us carrying picnic baskets into our daily lives, not understanding that there is a battle going on around us. And the results have been catastrophic. Please grab your Bible if you would. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have one today, I want to invite you to hold up your Bibles and say our creed with us this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart 
and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, please follow along. It's page 917. Ephesians chapter number two, as you're turning to Ephesians two, I would just remind you last week we kind of springboarded this series with this one verse. And if you have a red letter Bible, you saw it was the words of Jesus last Sunday morning. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes and he has a singular mission, but we have to explain it three ways. Only, usually when you say only, you only say one thing. He comes only to steal and to kill, and to destroy. Then Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You might not know this. Maybe this will make you a little smarter today when you walk out of the door. The Bible, the New Testament specifically, was mostly written in a dead language that's called Koine Greek. And in the Greek, by the way, and in the Old Testament Hebrew, there's no punctuations. It's been translated into new languages. The translators have tried to figure out where the period should go and the commas should go and the semicolon, uh, semicolon should go and all of those things and where the quotation marks seem to fit and all that kind of a thing. And this is one of those places that I would just humbly and respectfully tell the translators, I wish they had not put a period. I wish they would have put a comma. Because these are not two separate truths. These are two simultaneous truths. I wish it said the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, comma, but in that same moment, in that same train of thought, but there's another reality that supersedes that reality. It's the real or real. It's the true or true. Even though there's a thief, even though there's an enemy, Jesus has come, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and he has come not to be life, that would be good enough. He also came that we would have life, and that would be good enough, but that we would have it abundantly, that we would be fully alive. The full life, the abundant life, does not mean there's not a thief. The abundant life doesn't mean there isn't a battlefield all around us. It just means we're not defined by the battle. We're not defeated in the battle. What the abundant life promises us is not a lack of struggle. The abundant life promises that we can thrive even in the midst of a war. One of the other texts that we mentioned last Sunday was here, what will be our, our heart text today in Ephesians chapter number 2. Last week we only looked at verses 4 and 5, but I want to read verses 4 through 10, kind of the end of this thought. If you're looking at your Bible, it's the end of the paragraph. By the way, there weren't paragraphs originally either. We made those up as well. It starts off with these glorious words that I wish we could have read into John 10, 10, but God, everything changes when there's a but God moment, but God being rich in mercy. If you're following the stock trends on the mercy of God today, he's trending up. That's really good news for us if we're in need of mercy. Being rich in mercy because of the great love 
with which he loved us. Let me just pause for a second before I read the rest of this text. We sang the lyrics this morning, or mouthed the lyrics this morning, that there's something I just can't get over. Before I read this, I pause to invite the Holy Spirit to help us read this in a way that we are not over it. Begin with me, Holy Spirit. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, stolen from, killed, and destroyed in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. Together with Christ. Together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He's going to say that again in a minute. It's like he couldn't wait. The Apostle Paul is so calculated in his writing, and it's like he had this moment of acting like the Apostle Peter. He had to blurt out, by grace, you've been saved. And if that weren't good enough, (laughs) and raised us up with him. This is present tense, friend. This is not what will happen when we die. He has raised, glory to God, he has raised us from death up with him and seated us. With him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're in two places at once today. If you're in Christ. You are not just seated at 6824 Randall Mill today. That's not just your present reality, by the way. That will be your future reality. And check out what will happen. You'll get to have a mansion. I already sarcastically mentioned that. Oh, it's so much better than that. So in the coming ages... He might show, reveal, unpack, help us really understand the immeasurable riches of his grace. So we already talked about he's really rich in mercy and he is immeasurably rich in grace. You might be dead broke today. I just want you to know that in Christ... You are a partaker of the wealth of his mercy and the richness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he says, this is what I was starting to say earlier. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. I've preached on this before. Faith is divine. Faith is not human. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, God has dealt every man a measure of faith. We're saved by grace through faith, but the faith isn't ours either. It's all of him, by him, through him, and for him. We're saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're using a paper Bible and you're an underliner or a underliner or a highlighter kind of a person, that word walk there is the beauty of the gospel. 
that, that the rescue of grace and the richness of mercy does not just secure my spiritual standing or seating in Christ. It does not just secure my future paradise. It changes my present day walk. That's the, that's the, the reality of the gospel. I did not intend to spend that much time on the text. Because my heart this morning is actually for what is on the other side of the but. We started reading with but God. Well, what's the converse reality? Not and God, but God. There's an alternative. Uh, there's, a, there's another view. There's another side of this same coin. Look at verses 1 through 3. You, we, I, we were dead. In our trespasses and sins. We didn't kind of mess up. We weren't on the struggle bus. We did not slip up. Apart from Christ, we are dead. In which, verse 2, you once, there's that word. Walked. Again, if you're an underliner, underline dead, underline walked. That's what's on the other side of the butt. Now that we're in Christ, we don't walk like dead people anymore. We walk in abundance of life. Come on, somebody. In Christ, the other side of the butt God is we don't walk like dead people anymore. Because we used to walk following the course that's the momentum the flow of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Oh, that sounds like a judgy term. Among whom we all once lived. And the passions of our flesh carrying out, walking out, fleshing out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. In case we're being too hard on ourselves, or too hard on anybody else. Welcome to humankind. We are born into death. But God, abundant life is ours. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those of you who enjoy reading or enjoy a good book, every now and then you encounter something that you think to yourself, I will never be the same having read this. Or I hope. I hope I'll never be the same after having read this. A couple years ago, I read a book by an author named John Mark Comer called Live No Lies. And I read this book and thought, I hope I'm never the same again. I began to write these sermons from what the Spirit was doing in my heart for when we finished the Acts series. And then it was time to choose a theme for the new school year. And I felt like this is for our students as well. And so some of this I shared back in August with our student body. And it's really kind of guided our our chapels for this whole school year. This series, Fully Alive, I think answers some questions. In these verses, I think we can find the answer to what might be A nagging question inside of us. Maybe a question we're trying to ignore or numb or medicate. The question, what's the deal? What 
is wrong. Why does life not seem fully alive? Why does my life not appear or feel or look very abundant? If I believe what I say I believe, and I believe we do, why does life not seem that way? The rest of the world looks at us and thinks you have the greatest life anyone could fathom. Riches beyond comprehension for most of the world. We live in a great city. There's nowhere else I'd rather be today than Fort Worth, Texas. I have access to anything I could want in life. I can't afford it all, but I'm closer to it than most of the world. So then why is my soul so tired? Why does my spirit seem so worn down? Why is my heart exhausted? Why do I feel beat up? Why does every day feel like a battle? Here's a thought. Maybe because it is. Why does life not seem fully alive, I believe part of that answer is that we are at war. For over a year, I have not looked forward to this sermon and really looked forward to this sermon at the same exact time. I, 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 I was at a pastor's conference Thursday and Friday in Atlanta, and one of the preachers said, we get up every Sunday morning believing this sermon could change the world and then have to start on our next sermon. And I do believe that every week. But then there's a week like this where I just really actually like overflow, overwhelm, kind of believe somebody's life could look different if you lock in today. And I haven't wanted to have this conversation because we don't like the imagery of war anymore. We don't like talking about soldiers and warfare. Our generation has a low comfort level with military metaphors. We prefer to talk about the Christian life as a journey. It's a lifestyle. It's just a relationship. And here's the thing. It is a journey. It is a lifestyle. It is a relationship. And it is warfare. And our spiritual ancestors... Our great-grandparents of the faith, they were not so shy about military metaphors. Specifically, the Apostle Paul himself talked again and again about military metaphors. When he was writing to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he said, Fight the good fight of the faith. That's 1 Timothy 6, not 5. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he said, Fight the The battle well. Not fight the battle. You're in the battle. Fight well. Here in Ephesians in chapter number 6, he tells this church at Ephesus, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the spiritual forces of evil. So put on 
the military armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. He told the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the weapons that we fight with are not weapons of this world. And then he tells them, but we have the authority, the divine power to demolish strongholds. That does not sound like a little happy flower. It's violence. And these are for the people who heard the stories of the passive rabbi who told them to turn the other cheek and bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies. And then he allowed his accusers to execute him. I believe we need a wake-up call to the reality that we are at war for life. If we're going to be fully alive in this generation, it's not going to come find us. We have to wake up to the fact that a warfare has interrupted our picnic. A few years ago, our youngest son, Bryson, got strep throat a few times in a row and then started having night terrors. Apparently, it's a thing. His older brothers didn't know that was a thing. They just thought he'd become demon-possessed. Because when he had those night terrors, I say this lovingly and affirmingly, it was creepy. It was just creepy. He's shaking and rocking back and forth and just waiting for his head to turn around and for the vomit. And he's like, it's... And the thing about that bizarre moment is he wasn't even awake. And I really think some of us are sleepwalking through the difficulties of life and not knowing why we feel so beat up. We're walking like dead people. So the truth is we're at war. The question is with whom? For centuries, the most brilliant scholars in the Christian world have talked about the three enemies of the soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We see this writing, this verbiage, the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, back almost a thousand years Some of the first theological writings that we have, specifically in 1265, Thomas Aquinas wrote what is considered to be one of the most important theological works in the history of Christendom, Summa Theologica. And it's the first time we see written together in this packaging, the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Fast forward a couple hundred years and we have what for us we would consider the most pivotal moment Since the launch of the church, what we call the Great Reformation. In those fragile days of the beginning of the Great Reformation, they all got together to figure out what was going on. It was called the Council of Trent in 1543. And what we read in those writings is the three enemies of the soul were being discussed. They weren't talking about battling with one another in the most contentious moment of modern church history. They were talking about battling against the enemies of the soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And then it showed up just a short time later in the English-speaking world. If you perhaps grew up in a more liturgical church, you 
might have had the Book of Common Prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. 1549. And I have it on the screen so that you can see this. And there, there are not misspellings here. From all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, God, Lord, deliver us. And I kept the old English spelling because I think it represents how some of us view these topics. As that's from another generation. That's so old school. That's so out of touch. I mean, it's short enough to be tweetable, but who would? Many of us, even in the church, have left these behind as relics. The world that sounds like the dude with the bullhorn on the street corner who's screaming, turn or burn, preaching against ACDC. The flesh. In this generation, we have equated feeling good with being good. How dare you call the flesh an enemy? Flesh is our God. And then the devil, please. I mean, like the little red suit with the pitchfork. You actually believe this? And then we feel this tug of war inside of us that says something's wrong. We see this constant chaos in the world around us. And we're like, man, why is the world such a mess? And why am I such a mess? John Mark Comer wrote this. He said, well, it's easy to scoff at the ancient categories. I believe the world, the flesh, and the devil are alive and well. And aided by our skepticism, they are wreaking havoc. In our souls and society. The exact phrasing and verbiage, the world, the flesh, and the devil, don't appear in the New Testament. But man, those concepts surely do. That's why these brilliant minds compacted them for our understanding. But in our text this morning, we can see it. So come back again to verses 1 through 3. And again, if you're a a highlighter person or an underliner person, I would... I would help you, you would help yourself by writing this. We, we used to walk following the course of the world. Course of the world. All of that's a healthy understanding. We're not going to talk much about the world, the flesh, or the devil today. We're going to park on them in the coming weeks. But there's a, there's a momentum, there's a gravitational pull in every culture that's ever, ever existed. That's the course of the world. Down in verse 3, we say, we used to walk among the sons of disobedience, lived in the passions of our flesh. That we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And then between those two, we see this recognition of the influence of the prince of the power of the air. In this text, we see that but God is just on the other side of the death that comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we walk in this awareness. And I I feel compelled to to park here for a minute. Um, This is unpleasant. 
this is inconvenient. I wish this weren't true. I wish John 10.10 just said Jesus came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. I wish there was no first half to that reality. But but I want to share something with you. And maybe I don't need to say this, except that I feel like the Holy Spirit's compelling me to say this. And so maybe somebody needs this today. So give me a minute here. I want to speak from my heart. And this is not so much about this topic. This is a life principle. Okay? There is such a thing as truth. Like I believe with all my heart that absolute truth absolutely exists. There's such a thing as truth. And here's the thing about truth. Truth is true whether or not I believe it. Truth is true whether or not I like it. Truth is true whether or not I'm feeling it, digging it, vibing with it. Truth is true whether or not I affirm it or tolerate it. Truth is true whether or not I accept it or acknowledge it. There's such a thing as truth, but I want to say more than that. There is such a thing as truth, and when I ignore it, there are consequences. If I don't like the truth... So I pretend it doesn't exist. There are consequences to that. It is true that this Tuesday is official tax day. The first Tuesday after April 15th. That is true. And if you ignore that truth, there are consequences. If it is true... That you have a test tomorrow and you ignore that truth, there will be consequences. And all of the parents said in the house of the Lord. If it is true that you have a deadline at work this week and you ignore that truth, your supervisor asked me to tell you there will be consequences. If it is true that your doctor has told you that you have high blood blood sugar and you ignore that truth, there will be consequences. If it is true that the low oil light is currently on on your dashboard and you ignore that truth, there will be consequences. And the truth is, we are at war. With the world, with our own flesh, and with the devil himself. And if we ignore that reality, we might find the very consequences we see to our right and our left. Let me say it another way. If we ignore the consequences, rather if we ignore the truth, there's consequences But if we address the wrong truths, there's consequences too. Meaning if we fight the wrong battles, there's consequences. 
if the low oil light is on on my dashboard and I go to discount tire and put air in my tires. There will be consequences. In the same way, I would submit to you that Christian marriages seldom fall apart in random. Most of the time, they were so busy fighting with each other, they didn't realize somebody was fighting against them. Marisa is not my enemy. But we do have one. If there's any hope for us to experience the abundant life in our home, then we will not fight each other. We will fight together. With all my heart, I want to, I want to raise three young men. Who will walk out into a world gone mad. And they will not think the world owes them something. They will not expect everything to go their way. By God's grace, I want to raise some young men with some fight in them. My heart is heavy for some of you today. Because some of you are in the middle of a full-blown attack and you don't even realize it. And that's my story too. My deepest regrets, my moments of greatest failures were when I expected life to be easier. When I assumed I was on a picnic and not in a battle. And let me just say this. This is why I have so much hope for the next generation. They are aware that something's wrong. And they're hungry for something better. I have so much hope for our young adults and our students because they've watched us battle one another over denominational divides and music styles and dress codes and standards and methods and a million other unimportant things And they've had enough. They're hungry. What we saw a glimpse of in the Asbury Revival this year is a young generation that is warring for more. Against the dead and the dry and the stale. Maybe they're waking up. The truth is we are at war with whom? The world, the flesh, and the devil. How are we at war? What is the strategies? What are the strategies of the world, the flesh, and the devil? I'm glad you asked. This was the wake-up call that that book, Living No Lies, became for me, is, is this idea this morning. John Mark Comer's theory is what he sees in our generation today, these These are the strategies of the world, the flesh, and the devil in the midst of our day-to-day. Deceptive ideas, 
that aren't just floating in the universe, ideas rather that are intersecting with harmful desires inside of us that are normalized in a sinful society. Deceptive ideas coming from the father of lies himself. Here's my commercial. We're going to talk about Satan next Sunday. Come back and be here. I'm serious. He doesn't lie. It's worse than that. He's the father of lies. He's the origin source. He's patient zero of deceptive ideas. The problem is he doesn't lie into the universe. He lies to people who bear the image of God, who are fallen and broken, who are in captivity to a flesh that desires things that aren't good for us. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, but if you don't believe me, two words. Chocolate chips. We desire things that aren't good for us. But it's not just the devil is whispering lies that I actually want to hear. I don't live on an island. I exist in a culture. And we're in a moment today where the culture is not just affirming lies. It's actually celebrating them. This is this phrase. Our students have heard this all semester. We've repeated this again and again because we've been talking about modern topics and trying to diagnose what is the lie, why do I want to believe it, and what's the rest of the culture saying. We've, that's, that's what we've been doing all semester, all school year, rather. And here's the thing about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, the devil, I mean, uh, the world is the sinful society. Um, I guess I didn't say that. Either. It's not so much, please hear me. It's not so much that we're just like against these things. It's that we're for life. <laughs> like in the church is so known today by what we're against. Let me be real clear. Here's what I'm for. Full human flourishing. Like because we're for life, abundant life, then we have to recognize the opponent. Right? Cancer doctors did not give their lives over to studying cancer because they think it's good. They want to cure the problem. And here's the deal. We're not focused on the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not building our life around what we're against. We're celebrating what we're for, the life of Jesus on planet Earth. This is a battle cry for the sake of life. I highlighted, wrote some stuff down, and stole some verbiage from John Mark Comer, and this is what I wrote down. Why, why are our minds so turned upside down? Why do I feel this tug of war of desires in my own heart? Why do I keep coming back to harmful behaviors? Why is there this incessant stream of bad news from all around the world? With all of our money and all of our technology 
and all of our political power, why can't we fix the world's deepest problems? And why do I even care so much? Why does it weigh so heavy on me? Consider this. Could it be that our souls are at war with another world? And unless this is just too negative today, let's go back to the better side of the butt. So we started off with this illustration about the Battle of Bull Run. I want to circle back to that quote from Dave Harvey. You can't be close to war and safe from it at the same time. Dave Harvey's a New York Times bestseller and a respected man. So I don't stand in a position to disagree with him. But I would just ask Mr. Harvey a question. But what if the war has already been won? I think you can't actually be in the war and be safe from it because you're in Christ. And so we're not aware of the world and the flesh and the devil from this defeatist, dark, broken, apocalyptic view. No, no, no. We stand in the glorious hope of the gospel of a resurrected Christ and we look at the enemy and go, oh, I need to see you so I can fight you because I am in a war, but it's finished. What if this war is actually good for us? <laughs> like, what if this tension is not something to be afraid of, it's something to fight against? What if this resistance is building the muscles of faith to trust deeper in the hope of the gospel? This is what Comer said. What if, instead of coming apart, we came together? What if, instead of losing our souls, we discovered them? This beauty of but... God, being rich in mercy. We've already been saved from the war. Now we just walk in it with awareness, with hope, and with resilience. Here's been my my heart's cry for this series, for these several weeks together. I'm praying that this will be spiritual vitamins that will increase our spiritual white blood cell count. I'm I'm not a doctor. But my understanding is that our white blood cells fight the things inside of us that aren't good for us. Right? And I'm hoping that the Word of God will fuel us to fight well. To fight in hope. To contend for life. And here's why. Because life is available. Christ has come. So that we can have life. I didn't plan to end this way, but I saw an amazing truth this week something I've never heard of before. Maybe you're familiar with this, but I have a picture here this morning of the Atacama 
desert in Chile. That is not a picture of Mars. Interestingly, it looks kind of like Mars. It is known as the driest place on Earth because of where it's nestled between some mountains and the Pacific Ocean. It just rarely ever rains, and when it does, it's just a few drops, and it's so dry, it's instantly evaporated. And so they've actually sent the Mars vehicles to this desert to test them. It's kind of funny that it kind of looks like Mars. They've studied this. The the brains that are developing the Mars research have studied the, the etymology of this place to understand it. The driest place on earth. The thing about the driest place on earth is I heard John Tyson say on Friday, underneath this desert bed, there are over 200 different kinds of wildflowers. Because of the dryness, they just kept sinking. And every now and then a national I mean, a, a, a natural phenomenon happens where enough rain will fall every three to ten years. Where enough rain will fall, and it's called a super bloom. Overnight, enough rain will fall. This is from a recent one where seven years' worth of rain fell in 12 hours. What I love about this picture is that there's young people out in that field. As we examine the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's not to be mesmerized by the barrenness we see in the world today. It's to remind ourselves that even in the midst of this dryness, there is life at work. And what we are waiting for and praying for and standing with the hope of the gospel for is for a super bloom of revival spirit. That God will birth life in the midst of this dryness. And maybe for you this morning, that's not so much what you hope will happen in society or the culture. Maybe you feel in desperate need of that in your own life today. And here's what I believe on the authority of the resurrection. I believe life is there. And my prayer is that for these next few weeks together, the water of the word will bring to fulfillment abundance of life for all who are in Christ Jesus.